Today, ladies and gentlemen, my guest is Hugh Philp, who is currently the ACA President of Australia and has been for a couple of years now. Morning, Hugh. How are you? Morning, Kay. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. As I introduced you as the President of the ACA, the ACA, for those who don't know, is the Australian Camp Drafting Association, but I guess we need to go back to the beginning to make a story about how you got there. It's a pretty impressive position to hold in what is probably one of the fastest growing sports in Australia at the moment. So, Hugh... um, the life for you, you live where? Uh, I live at Wyena near Claremont uh, in central Queensland with my wife and four kids. Is it a family property you're on? Yeah, it is a family property, yeah. We've been here uh, since Christmas 2005. We were never far from Claremont, though, over the time, were you? No, okay. I was born around the Collinsville area on cattle properties around there and mum and dad moved to Pyramid. Station near the Burdekin Dam in the late 1970s, and then we moved to Fig Tree in the mid 1980s over near Collinsville, and that's where I spent most of my teenage years when I wasn't at boarding school in Brisbane at Churchy. And um, yeah, and then when I got married, I moved over to Broadley near Moorambah, and then here to Wyena. Uh, in 2005. So I guess uh, riding horses and, and growing up in the bush was, was part of life? Yeah, yeah, probably since I was six years old and, yeah, Dad was a big influence on me through those years. And uh, camp drafting, I guess we only probably did three camp drafts a year when we were in our juniors and then a couple a year when we were juvenile. But, yeah, they weren't a lot, but a few in that few in the central area back then. Did you do pony club or was it just like all of the kids in the bush? Um, a fellow ringer, someone gave you some instructions or was it a bit more structured for the Philp kids? Uh, I wouldn't have said we were very structured. Uh, <laughs> I spent, we spent a lot of riding horses with my brother Jason and, and my sister Lisa and later years Brian. But uh, no, we were too far away from a pony club area to get into that and um, I guess mustering helping Dad with the cattle work and then getting to a draft when we could. So was your dad a drafter? Yeah, no, Dad's been in the camp drafting for a lot of years. Actually, this year uh, marks 50 years of Dad contributing to the sport. He rode into a camp draft at Mount Coolum in 1970 when he came up into this area as a jackaroo, and that was his first go. And and then he, yeah, got into the drafts and travelled to a few with um, Stewie Ross, who's passed away now, but he was a great contributor to the sport. And, yeah, Dad's been, you know, second in the Warwick Gold Cup called Casanova in 1987. And, yeah, a cattle donor and president of Mount Coolin and Bowen River, big contributor. So, yeah, been in the sport a long time. And, and, and I guess that's, yeah, I'll come into that. That would have made it easy. There was no wanting to play football for you. You had to go camp drafting and Dad thought that was a good thing too. Well, I tried to play football when I went to school in Brisbane and got hurt and thought that wasn't much good. So I played soccer and then I played football again and finally I got back to camp drafting. (laughs) And a buster off a horse doesn't hurt anything like a football injury. No, no. Not much fun when you're winded. (laughs) So um, do do your kids continue to draft? Are they into it or are they playing football? Yeah, no, they've um, been into the drafting when they're in their juniors. 
and get to a juvenile draft when they get home. But I've found with through their yeah secondary school down at Churchy that they've done very well with their sport and uh, been into their cricket and rugby and Luke's down there right now getting ready for a senior year with the rugby and he's in the squad for the first 15 so that'll be exciting if he can make that but yeah they when they come home they're helping me master and they're right into all the horses as well so yeah it's great. It is the one great thing that people uh, talk about the, the camp drafting sport is that it is a family sport. And I guess for boys like yours, it's one of those sports that when they come home, they can pick it up where they left off and compete and be competitive. Yeah, I think oh, we're very lucky. There's no doubt about that. You get a horse that gets along with, you know, they can come back on the holidays, get on it and go and they know where they're at. The horses can last for 10 or 15 years. So, yeah creates a mateship with that horse and you know I know my youngest daughter Isabel she's heading off to school next year but she's got a horse now that she you know gets along with and that horse will be here when she's home so she knows that and and then the opportunities to be able to go to these drafts and yeah it's a terrific sport I just love being able to give back to it. You know, in your early years, did you have a good horse? You're renowned now for having some pretty amazing horses and are followed closely because of some of your horses. Um, in the early days, were they just horses that uh, you rode mustering every day or did you have camp horses, so to speak, and mustering horses or was, you know, that luxury only been afforded later in life? Yeah, I was uh, very lucky always to have horses that I enjoyed riding and, uh, yeah, the horses I could get on and control easy and put them where I wanted to because I was a bit steady coming along, you know, about wanting to go too fast and all that sort of stuff. And and I know, you know, Dad always had a good horse for us to step up onto in the juvenile draft. And then when we left school, he gave us each a very good horse to get us started in the drafting. And I think when I look back on those times, a, a good horse can teach you a lot more than you know at the time. And I was lucky enough to have those sort of horses, yeah. So moving forward, at what stage in your life did you decide you need to sort of step up and go from being the competitor who rides in, does his bit, takes his horse back to the truck and then heads to the bar to I need to get actively involved in this sport and, and give my bit back and uh, and make the changes that I think needs to make? Uh, I think, yeah, it was, I think I got a light bulb moment in my life when I realise, you know, just how lucky we are to do this sport, you know, to go there, compete with our friends. And and I just thought there's a lot worth fighting for to keep the sport. You know, I think in this era, we everyone wants to be better and make something better and wants to pay more money for something. And, you know, sometimes we don't stop and realise the good things that we do have. And I could see a lot of that stuff still there. And I felt you know, in years looking back, I hope that we do hang on to the good things in our sport, whatever that is. Mm. And, yeah, I guess uh, a friend of mine, Stuart Wallace, rang me one day and said that he was stepping down from the council and he asked if I'd go in there and uh, take his place. And, yeah, I wasn't sure at the time because the kids were just starting to go into boarding school and I didn't know whether I'd be able to contribute. But, anyway, I got involved. And then it just snowballed from there. Michael Hayes asked me to take on higher roles and I did that. And, yeah, it wasn't something I'd planned for, you know, 10 years ago. But, yeah, it certainly rolled on from that. 
So just taking a step back, for those people who don't know um, the structure of the ACA, you know, from the top down, it's managed by a board and you're the chairman of that board. Is that how it works and you're voted on to that board? Well, actually, when I came into the position, I was the only one that applied to be president that year when Ian Addo stepped down. Mm -hmm. So I actually didn't have to go up against anyone to be voted on then. That uh, unique thing about the ACA, the president, and yeah, in the history of it, there has never been a vote for the president. Mm. So uh, the council's made up of 52, around about 50-odd councillors right across Australia, and within that group there's nine subcommittees that uh, handle different categories within the ACA, like there'll be the judges' committee and then the rules' committee and, you know, code of conduct, just for an example of mm. some of the committees are there. And then within our, I've got a small group of executives that consist of the three vice presidents, myself, the treasurer, and we probably, you know, keep in close contact with the office more so and make the day-to-day decisions that keep the camp drafting world going ahead that we know the council would be happy with. and then. When it becomes bigger decisions uh, going forward, with you know, I always involve the whole council on those decisions. That would be an interesting thing, trying to uh, control fifty people and fifty different opinions around a, around a board table. You'd be congratulated. I can't <laughs> get six to agree with me sometimes. I guess just on that, the affiliation of the states to one national body. Do you think that's been a success? Yeah, it's it's a contributing factor. I mean. Uh, there's four associations in Australia and we all are under the National Camp Draft banner. So I think that that system works really well where we come together once a year and discuss rules and, you know, that different associations that might be trying to bring in and deciding whether that's good for the whole sport or not. And each of our own councillors within those associations get to decide on that. So it goes through a lot of different decision-making processes before it becomes official, if there's a change in rules. and But I think the you know, national group, they're, they're looking out on a national level and that's been a great help in these recent proceedings with COVID stuff. So that works well. But I think as far as on an ACA level, communicating with our committees, uh, recently the girls in the office have started up a support thing for secretaries on a phone-in thing, you know, once every three months. And I know that the secretaries have come to me and said it's been a terrific idea to give that support. So, yeah, just the continuing communication, I think, is a, a massive thing. Yeah, you know, from an ACA perspective, you know, I guess everyone and every camp drafter is disappointed with the results of what's happened as a result of COVID. But from a governing level, you know, how have you been able to manage that? Well... The early stages when this COVID was coming in, first the government said, you know, no more gathering of 500 people, and then it dropped to 100 people. And, yes, I was getting committees ringing me and saying, well, we only have a one-day event or a two-day event. We don't get anywhere near that amount of people. Surely we can run. And I guess that's when we had the meeting with the National Camp Draft Group and decided a unified decision across the board because it's a sport that caters from... 90-year-olds to 3-year-olds. And 
in that range, this COVID was a threat to a lot of that era of people. And we just thought very hard to ask committees to say to some people, you can't come <laughs> to our draft. So we just, as you know, if you'd be a bit cranky about that. So as it, as it turned out, it was a good decision just to shut down for a while. And, and see what happens from there. Yeah, it will yeah. be um, it will be an interesting um, environment when we start back up. I, I uh, sit on the Rolston Camp Draft Committee myself, and our draft has been postponed like everyone else's. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I have said to our committee, I think it'll be a good thing. There'll be a draft every weekend once it starts, so you can rest assured of that. And so, no one should miss out on a run somewhere because of that. Yeah, I think it's going to make it even stronger. The Members that I've been talking to, are, you know, they're very enthusiastic and there's no one being critical. Some people ring me and say, it must be tough what you've got to deal with. It hasn't been tough at all because, you know, the people in camp drafting, it doesn't matter what area you're from, they're, they're similar and they want to help to make it work. And, you know, if I'm saying to committees, look, there's a chance we could get going again after the winter, they say, yeah, we understand that, and that's what they're thinking as well. And I know the Northern Territory have got the go-ahead with their government lifting all restrictions by the 5th of June, but in saying that, they've still got to work with the health minister up there to have the right things in play. Uh, So, you know, and we're working with those secretaries to see what they come up with to make it happen so that as things start to lift and we can get drafting again, we'll be more than ready. And, yeah, that's the plan. I, I, think, I think it'll be stronger than ever. Yeah, well, let's hope so. It's um, always a lot of fun and everyone who participates really enjoy it. Um, as the president of the ACA, what do you see, other than COVID, um, the challenges for the organisation and um, for the sport in the way forward? Yeah, I think the challenges will be what they were similar, you know, before this COVID hit was the amount of people that are wanting to do the sport and compete at it and getting everyone to the draft and, yeah, making committees feel supported when there's some tough decisions to be made. I mean, I'm guided by the members in what they're seeing in their different areas and I guess that's the biggest challenge, getting everyone that wants to compete to these events and, yeah, I know there's plenty of ideas, but the the council that I've got dealing with, I, I know, like you said, it's hard to get everyone agreeing on a decision, but the group that I have in that room, they're very level-headed and they're for the, you know, the best of the sport. And, yeah, we've got to be aware of our history and, and how we go forward with that. Um, all sports at the moment that um, involve animals go up against the animal welfare issue. Um, does ACA have a, um, a policy, a position on that, or is it something that you think you'll have to deal with as it happens? Yeah, this is a challenge for the ACA, the animal welfare side of things. And uh, recently there was a, a big thing put together in Brisbane with um, a bloke who was a world leader in things to be aware of with animal welfare. And I had Sean Dillon and Andrew Storman go to that and they were very interested with all that. But, you know, I've grown up in the sport and I've seen, you know, the way people look after their cattle when they're donating them and I've seen the way horses are presented and looked after. And I think, you know, the ACA definitely has 
things written in there under the NCC as well with animal welfare. And I guess all I can say to the men is, you know, if you're aware of that yourself, then that's a huge help to the whole thing going forward. And and I think we've got a lot to be proud of with our animal welfare and the standards that we set within the ACO. Absolutely, and no doubt, um, you know, it is something that comes up at every judging school. I would have thought, you know, every draft that you go to and, and I announce a few drafts and everyone says, you know, every judge, their first comment is, um, look after the cattle and if you don't, I'll give you the whip. Yeah, look, we definitely push it very strongly in the judges' clinics and there is guidelines in there, I guess, to give you an example with the blood nose on mm-hmm. cattle. The judges have the right to crack them off and, you know, decide yes or no whether they have a rerun. But the main thing we're saying to them is look after the cattle and and the horses with those things in mind. Uh, But judges need to know that they're supported by the ACA as well because I know, you know, people on the sideline can be saying, oh, he just galloped into the cattle. But the judge has to be consistent as well. and. You know, there is a lot of pace on with this event and and I think the judges do an absolutely terrific job with how they handle all that. And and I guess I've really noticed it over the last 10 or 15 years how much people have got better looking after the cattle in the cutout. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, the judge is there to, you know, score the runs and do the best he can, but there are those things that he has to keep in mind and... And I think they do a terrific job. I agree with you. I couldn't say that I've been to a draft yet where I've walked away and thought that judge was pretty wild. Um, so moving forward, I guess, yep. um, where do you think and what do you think the development and the growth of the sport will be, and I don't need to tell you, is out of this world, the growth in, in camp drafting. Do you think there's a point where we're going to create a monster and it's going to be something that is uh, just about unmanageable or do you think that it will become a sport where people go and committees go we can only do what we can do and that's the best we can offer yeah it's a good point and it's it's hard to give a answer of which way I hear right now but I know over the years the committees have adjusted and worked with that growth and I guess to give a really good example of that is Warwick couple of years ago and they came to the ACA and asked you know what were some options and they had some options that you know they'd like to try and we ended up putting a rule in place that if there was over 500 entries in an event then you would be able to restrict it to two runs per rider and the reason we went with that was you know the sport's been growing on you know the non-pro professional combined, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And great young riders coming into the sport that have got a good horse and want to be there. And Warwick went with that and restricted the Canning Downs to two and the Gold Cup to four runs. And there was backlash from people, you know, that had more horses that they wanted to be riding for clients and all that. But I thought it was a terrific move from Warwick because anyone that, still wanted to go to Warwick, could go to Warwick. And they could have one run or four runs, whatever they wanted in the Warwick Gold Cup. And I think that's an example of a committee moving with that. 
and and I think it was a terrific idea. Yeah, I yeah. think, um, you know, again, from sitting where I sit, that is the only way that the uh, sport will really be able to be managed and, and the growth continue, you know, like you say, that gives everybody a go and, um, you know, those people who do it as a profession, they have to then make up their mind where it's best for them to be, I guess, on a particular weekend. But it is heartening to see that there are committees who are actually doing that. And I think that's becoming more of the norm rather than an exception in an endeavour to try to to get people and in particular their local people into their drafts. And again, the ACA to be congratulated on that. I guess um, just to swing back to the Hugh Philp story, you're a very talented and rewarded and awarded camp drafter yourself. What's the best horse that you've ridden? We all know you've got an amazing stallion that I guess is your is your favourite probably, but is he the best horse you ride? Yeah, no, he's certainly. I've had a lot of enjoyment <laughs> with him, Kay, but I guess to be fair, I was very lucky to be given a bay mare called Jacqueline from my father when I left school. And uh, she really got me in and gave you that belief that you could do well. And years later, I had a Romeo girl called Lawson that Lindsay and Jan Knight bred. And he was a great family horse. Sherry rode him, and I think my kids rode him in a mini draft one day, but he won good opens. And then this horse ideal came along. And, yeah, I've, I've had a good horse at different stages of my life that kept things really interesting. But I... I think ideal, you know, he's certainly, yeah, done well for me on the biggest stage. He is pretty special, isn't he? He's good to watch. Um, do you have a string of horses or when you go drafting, do you say to the kids you can take one horse each and your mother and I are taking one and that's it? Or uh, Not really a string of horses. You know, if I've got three or four on the truck, that's pretty much me most of the time. Uh, the kids ride one or two of them and might have some on their own. So I guess we take seven or eight horses and Sherry'd have one as well. And at the moment I've got a good young team, four or five coming along, maiden horses. But, yeah, the last few years I've been pretty heavily reliant on ideal. But, yeah, as people know, horses don't come overnight and you have injuries and whatever. So, yeah, I guess around that three to four horses has been my team. You've done pretty successfully on three or four horses, I'd have to say. Um, where is um, your favourite place to go to draft? Not just because it's the best setup, but where do you really think, oh, I'm really looking forward to this weekend. I just love going and doing this. Uh, I'd, probably our local draft, Moranbar. I've always loved competing at Moranbar. And, um, yeah, and... and these drafts around here, all that I enjoy going to as well, and the Clermont Gold Cup weekend's terrific as well. So, yeah, but Moranbar's probably my favourite. Yeah, I would take it that you are a um, an accredited judge. Um, and what does Hugh Philp look for when you're sitting there with the whip? What are the things that really bug you, and you think, mate, you're just not getting what I'm telling you? And what do you think makes a good drafter? I think about the only thing that really bugs me when I'm judging is when I say, righto, and they take forever to pick their beast or have a look around and then look up at me and say, are you ready? <laughs> uh, that annoys me a bit, especially when I'm sitting there all day and <laughs> trying to keep things moving. But that would be the only thing. And then sometimes they're doing that because they're taking their time to pick clear the beast as well, But and that's fair enough. But, yeah, that can annoy me after a while. Uh I guess the things I look for is just a horse that in, I, I probably watch the horse more than the rider when I'm judging. And 
that sort of gets me focused on the horse that's wanting to do it and not, you know, resist. And, uh, yeah, obviously the front of the cutout and outside near the pegs as much as you can, but neat circles with a bit of pace and, and the horse loving doing what it's doing is probably the main things that I look for. So when we've got a junior or a juvenile um, rider who's listening to this podcast, what's your advice to them? I mean, you've done this for a long time and like I've said, you're very successful. You know, sometimes you go to a draft and you watch some kids and you think this is not going to end well if someone doesn't pull that kid up in a minute. Do you have some advice for those kids who think hard and fast is good? Uh, I think the greatest advice I could give is ride a horse that you feel confident on that you can put it wherever you want to and be happy with what that horse is giving you today because a lot of times you might not get the beast that's playing the game, but your horse does nothing wrong. So, you know, I think that's one of the great things about our junior camp drafting system where, you know, all the kids get a score and a lot of the kids are happy to get a 45 or 51 or whatever and it really teaches them to appreciate their horses because the better kids will go around the pegs and I think that's a great thing Uh, and I think as far as advice because it's not an easy sport I know juvenile camp drafts I never won a juvenile camp draft and then when I got out of that and got into open so I was lucky enough early on to win an open but you know it will happen if you keep on but being safe and working your beast around the course is much more important thinking than you've just got to go far. Yeah, you do watch some kids and you just really, your heart's in your mouth. Um, do you do you anticipate that you'll continue with the role of the ACA for, for much longer? Um, when you step down from being the president, do you step away or do you come back to a to a second president or how does that part of that work? Uh, I'd, yeah, I'm happy going at the moment. Uh, you know, we've got focuses on the next couple of years for the national finals uh, leading into Springshaw, which will celebrate 50 years of the ACA in mm-hmm. 2022. And I think I would really love to get to that if I can. And yep. um, But, yeah, it's a year-to-year thing. You can be voted in or out each year if, if they're not happy with how you're going. <laughs> so... <laughs> oh, oh. I'm not. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but <laughs> I think in this era, if I get to five years, I'll be going very well. <laughs> Hugh, we hear often and read, and as members in that, of decisions that are made by the ACA board committee that are, some are unpalatable to people and you come across a lot of criticism and no doubt you've been uh, shirt-collared by the odd person at a bar after a draft about what they deem is a stupid decision. How do you combat that when they do that to you? And it would be fair to assume that all decisions are no decisions made on the on the run. They're made with some sort of um, experience and knowledge. Do you get many of these decisions where you just constantly find you're under barrage because people don't agree with it? You know, we all know the the long sleeves and collared shirt deal for the women was one that seemed to go around and around for a while. And for the people on the outside looking in, I don't know what the big deal was because that's what 95% of them wear anyway. You know, how do you deal with that personally and at a committee level? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I guess to give you an example, saying you brought it up about the ladies' shirt and all that, I'm not going to say what is and what isn't right here, but <laughs> the rule book's there to look at that. Uh, 
that was a good example because how that unfolded was if a letter comes into the ACA office to the operations manager with concerns over that, if people see things changing because, you know, the history of our sport, you, they don't want to see that, just like someone riding in a cap that's not part of the attire. Mm-hmm. So then that will come to me and I'll look at it and decide, right, well, this is a rules issue. So I send it to the rules subcommittee to look at it, which is about nine people on that, and they'll have a telephone hook up and then they'll come back to the management council with a recommendation of what they think, which I think at the time was don't change anything. How it is is how we perceive it and it's not a massive issue. And so then that was discussed with the management council where there was about 30 people in the room and it's all people just like you and I that are just part of the sport wanting to give a bit back. And then we have a vote on it and I can remember that day it was, you know, 100% unanimous just to leave it as it is. But, yeah, then when I went to the draft, you know, I'd have a lady coming up to me, especially if I was judging and saying, oh, is this okay? Can I wear this? And I was like, oh, Christ. <laughs> What am I now? Fashion doctor with the whip, and and I and so you know, for me, it just gave me confidence that it's all okay. But yeah, social media. I mean, we had people ringing us that made these shirts, concerned about what they were going to make next. Oh God, give me a place to hide. Like I was, it wasn't. It wasn't a huge issue in the room. You know what I mean? But but it was concern from members, and that's why we took it to the subcommittees to the main room. So it goes through a lot of different processes and gives time for people to think about it if it needs changing or they see concerns. And you know, as far as we were concerned, the ladies' drafts we were seeing, the ladies are immaculate how they present themselves. And yeah, I, I guess that's all. Like, yeah, is that a yeah, good no, enough example that, of yeah, how, no, that's, how that's, we deal it's with gr- That's like great. That. Um, you know, analogy of the way it's done, and I guess, you know, all decisions would go before a committee of a lot of people, and uh, that decision is made by a committee. It's not the decision of Hugh Philp. It's a decision of um, a number of people who have been involved in the industry or in the sport for a long, long time and believe that it, they need to maintain yep. standards. And I guess that's what it's all about. And Every sport is yeah. in that regard. They have a standard, and if you don't like the standard, go and play bowls. Yeah, well, another example too, Kay, was we had a lot of discussion over the last 18 months on rider titles and options and horse titles, and we did a survey at Christmas time because I, the council weren't confident in what was, you know, they thought we've got to stick how we are, but we really need the members' input on this. And so we did a members' survey, and that was really strongly supported, and gave us a bit of an angle on how the members are thinking because I find it very hard to be, you know, dictated to by social media because we do have a process where you can send into the operation manager and we can look at it. And, you know, again, you need to be congratulated for having a transparent process and uh, if you want to be part of the sport, these are the rules and, um, you know, every sport has a rule. So, uh, Hugh, uh, your final message from the president, I guess, for ACA members and uh, spectators of camp drafting in Australia and for those who want to be a camp drafter, what's your message to them? Uh, well, I just just hang in there till we can all get going again and it'll be great to see the Northern Territory going again. 
I'd just like to thank all the members who are so good when they ring me and talk to me about all this stuff and just keep that positive attitude. And for those people that want to get into camp crafting, it doesn't happen overnight. And I, I remember listening to this with Adrian Lamb and he said the best thing you can do is go to school and get a bit of advice from the staff and and realise that, yeah, camp drafting's not about winning for everyone. It's about enjoying the weekend and helping out if you can. So, yeah, get on a committee, help with that sort of stuff. Every little bit helps. And, yeah, I just can't wait to work back camp drafting again. Do you uh, agree with me? I always say to people it's a great levelling sport. You can be Hugh Philp who's done it since he was a kid of six and get the whip in the yard and you can be someone who's having their second draft and have a win. To me, that's the great part of the sport. Do you see it that way or do you think if you're good, you're good and if you're not, well, you just got to work harder? Yeah, no, I think you've definitely got to work hard to be good at it. And But I think at the same time, that is the great thing about the sport. I mean, Pete Comiskey may get the whip in the yard today and that might be my chance to win. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not easy. He's not easy to beat, but you know, every now and then we might just get one on him. So. <laughs> it's always, you don't give up on the host. So it's always yeah. better if you go in after him. At least you know what you're chasing, hey? <laughs> yeah, and it's usually plenty. <laughs> yeah, it is. You feel we'd like yeah. to thank you for your uh, support and today, and uh, we uh, wish you many more good camp drafting events and uh, good luck with the rest of the job. Thanks very much, Kay. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.